Hey, Coffee Breakers. This is just a warning to let you know that this episode contains adult content and may be disturbing to some listeners. Please take caution and listener discretion is advised. Hey, Coffee Breakers. I'm AC. And I'm Scully. And today we are bringing you the story of Suzanne Savickas, which honestly is a long and sad story. So it's going to be probably broken into multiple parts. We won't know, though, until we get to the end. But this is more that deep dive that we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, several weeks ago. Yeah. Well, I say several. Last week. Last week. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's been <laughs> it several. Like a long time. <laughs> Go ahead. So included in this story is also the story of her son, Michael A. Hughes, and a co-worker, Cheryl Ann Camesso. Suzanne, Michael, and Cheryl are believed to have all lost their lives by the hand of Franklin Delano Floyd. Franklin would have more victims during his life. However, these are the lives that he is suspected or can suspected of and convicted of yeah. taking. He's not convicted of all these murders, but he's suspected of all and convicted for one. Yes. <laughs> so to be honest with you, this is a confusing story. Yeah. Just from the get. Like we started off with the girl in the picture, the documentary which led to all this. But it's filled with aliases and it covers decades of time. Yeah. Um so after hours of research, including <laughs> reading A Beautiful Mind and Finding Sharon by Matthew beautiful Life, isn't it? No, A Beautiful Child. You said mind. keep going but i'm just making sure so it's called a beautiful child a beautiful child Got and it. i'm reading this <laughs> <laughs> all right and finding sharon by matthew Bur- burbeck yeah um and listening to countless hours of other podcasts um dedicated to this story and of course we watched the documentary girl in the picture we did decided to do a deep dive yeah because it is an onion and it left so... It left you wanting. It did. It really did. It really did. If you Googled one thing while watching that documentary, you want this po- You want this podcast. You want to listen to this one. <laughs> right. Because this one is a lot more. We're going to cover everything. Um, so, where the documentary starts and where most other podcasts start is when Suzanne dies. Mm-hmm. I'm starting at the beginning. I like that. I'm going to start with Franklin's birth and go from there. And what my goal is, is um, to tell the most accurate and least confusing and easy to follow. Um, Like I said, there are a lot of aliases, which I'm going to inform the audience of as we go but i'm always going to refer to them to as their actual names okay um and the goal of this is to keep suzanne michael and cheryl's story alive to keep their names alive and hopefully we can learn stuff through this and ways to help people or ways to notice signs and ways to keep ourselves and our children safe yeah um all right. You ready to dive in? Yes. Let's... I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> All right. Let's do this. Frank- Franklin Delano Flo- 
this ain't turn. This ain't good. Let's just always call him Floyd because I can never say his middle name anyway. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to call him Franklin because he there hated it. Oh, okay. even better. <laughs> yeah. So, he hated, so he's Franklin. He wanted to be called Floyd. I ain't going to do it. So Franklin Delano Floyd was born to Thomas and Della Floyd on June 17th, 1943 in Barnesville, Georgia. Barnesville is located in Lamar County and is a part of the Atlanta metro area. Floyd was the youngest of five children. Mr. Thomas Floyd was an alcoholic and, from reports, abusive to the children's mother, Della. Okay. In 1944, when Franklin was one, Thomas died of kidney and liver failure, most likely due to his alcoholism. That's young. Yeah, that's relatively young. To wear out your kidneys and liver by that he time? He must have been a bad drunk. Right. <laughs> Mr. Thomas Floyd was, I just said that, he was 32 at the time he died. Uh, he left Della a widow at the age of 29. Jeez. With five children? With five children in the 1940s. Ooh, okay. So, Miss Della Floyd, along with her five children, moved in with her parents in a small apartment due to financial reasons. And this small apartment was actually located, like, above a grocery store. So, it was not a big area whatsoever. No. I mean, five kids moving into any home is going to be a lot. Uh, yeah. So. Especially when one's a baby. Yeah. So Della and the children lived there for about a year and a half before Della's parents decided the living arrangements were untenable and asked Della and her five children to leave. Mm. Della, on the advice of Lamar County Children's Services, placed all five of her children in the custody of Georgia Baptist Children's Home located in Hatfield, Georgia. Now, I will say that the book, A Beautiful Child, gives great detail into the history of the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. Okay. I don't find it pertinent to this story. Yeah. Um, but it had been around for a long time. Um, and it was originally founded to take care of orphans from the Civil War. Oh. So it had been around for a while. The children's home would not accept children unless they were complete orphans, either by death or circumstance, is what was in their handbook. On January the 5th, 1946, Della completed an application for the children to be accepted to the home. And on January the 11th, 1946, she received a response from the home that the children would be accepted. Mm. The conditions for acceptance stipulated that Della would have to give up her parental rights to her children and that visitation would be very limited. Feeling like she had no choice. According to Matthew Burback's book, A Beautiful Child, Della explained to her two oldest children, Billy, who was 13 at the time, and Dorothy, who was 11, that she loved all of them, but she had no choice because she could not feed or clothe them or provide them with a place to live. That's a lot. That's tough. I couldn't imagine as a parent. No. I mean, it's the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I you know, I have to look back at the history, but I don't think women were really in the workforce. And if they were, they probably got paid very little. I just couldn't imagine turning over my children. I know. 
So on January the 21st, 1946, a representative from the home came and picked up the children. Upon arrival at the home, the youth were placed together but quickly separated and placed with peers of their respective age groups. The daily routine of the home began at 6.30 a.m., where the children would eat breakfast, either pancakes or biscuits, attend school until 12 p.m. They would have lunch of peanut butter sandwiches and then work in the neighboring fields that supplied food for their dinners. Oh, wow. On Wednesdays and Sundays, the children always attended church, and at Christmas, the children received a candy and fruit basket based on donations. Oh, wow. During the summer, the children worked in the fields. Clothes were always hand-me-downs and donations and given out based on need. Della, during her many communications and requests for visitations, was informed by the home that her children were happy and healthy. Della's visitation requests were often denied. That, I want to know why. Like, So, I think it's a power and control thing. Because I get, like, it was there for children who were orphaned or abandoned, I guess. Yeah. But if you've got one, I mean, I don't know this mama, so Lord knows what she was doing, but I feel like if she's trying to make an attempts to see them, you right. want to let that happen. She could write them, and she did often, but visitation. Why? I don't know, but they were only allowed to visit two times per year. Wow. Yeah. Um, in the reality, the children, especially Franklin, had problems. Franklin would later claim that he began being sexually abused by other peers at the age of six. Mm. Around the same time, he became a discipline problem for the home and engaged in various behavioral offenses, from stealing chocolate to fighting and trying to run away. Yeah, I mean, he's getting sexually assaulted. Of course, (laughs) there's going to be a behavioral problem. Right. Through the 1950s, the Floyd children left the home on their 18th birthday. The first to leave was Billy, the oldest, and then Dorothy was the second. Franklin was the last to leave the home. No information has been provided about the two other children because there were five in total. Yeah. Do we even know if they're boys or girls? I have no idea. Wow. Okay. In 1959, Franklin ran away again from the home and broke into a nearby house and stole food. The home refused to take Franklin back and called his sister, Dorothy, who was grown and stated that if she agreed to take Franklin, he could avoid prosecution for the break-in and the theft. Dorothy, who was married, living in South Carolina, and had two small children, agreed, and Franklin was placed in her custody. It should be noted that in 1965, the home came under scrutiny from the Georgia Juvenile Courts, which stated that the home employed brutal punishments, and the home had to review its discipline policies. Clearly something's going on if you've got a kid running away to steal food. Right. Like. That's a, that's a big red flag. Yeah. Um, but Franklin's stay with Dorothy and her husband was only brief. Only lasting a few weeks. Dorothy's husband thought Franklin was dangerous and that their children were unsafe with him in the home. While it's most likely true, details of why this opinion emerged are not known to me at this time. It doesn't cover. There's no reasoning. I have to think he's buck wild at this point. Like, oh, yeah. We don't know what age he is. He's 16. He's buck wild. If he's been assaulted this whole time 
and he's had to probably it sounds like he had to fight for what what he got in yeah. the home i'm sure he was a handful oh yeah um but so he they kicked him out of the house yeah and franklin was then taken in by judge purdy a local domestic relations judge and he lived with judge purdy for about five months until he left to find, find his mother hmm. He found his mother in Indianapolis, Indiana, where she was working as a sex worker. And this upset Franklin a good bit, from what I can understand. He stayed with her for about two weeks, and his mother and Franklin completed paperwork. By that, I mean forged paperwork. So Franklin could enlist in the military, because he's 16, he's too young. Yeah. Um, Franklin then traveled to California, enlisted in the U.S. Army, on July 11th, 1959, he was 16 years old. He remained in the military and served in Missouri and Oklahoma for six months until the military discovered that Franklin's paperwork had been faked and he was underage. He was discharged from the Army in December 1959. Wow. So much. In February 1960, Franklin broke into a Sears department store to steal a gun. And this happened in California. He tripped an alarm and the police arrived and exchanged gunfire with him. Franklin was shot in the abdomen and after receiving surgery and medical care, he was placed in the Youth Institute in Preston, California. He remained there from June 1960 until August 1961. He was 18 years old when he was paroled, but he would not remain free long. In November 1961, he was taken into custody for violation of parole, leaving the state without permission. He underwent psychiatric testing and was released in January 1962. And we don't know that. We don't know the results of that psychiatric testing. No, so that's probably one of the most frustrating things about it. Like, the book kind of says a little bit about his psychiatric testing, but nothing's confirmed. Mm, Okay. So we just don't know. Um, I do remember reading potential diagnosis of schizophrenia. Okay. But not sure. Um, five months later, in May 1962, he arrived back in Hateville, Georgia, and found a place to live near the children's home that he hated while growing up. Hmm. It wasn't long before Franklin engaged in criminal sexual activity. In June 1962, Franklin entered a local bowling alley and kidnapped a four-year-old girl. He took her to the woods outside of the bowling alley and sexually abused the child. The physical examination, please note this is graphic, y'all, so hit 10 seconds if you don't want to hear it, showed semen stains and bite marks on and around her vagina area. Franklin was convicted of child molestation on July the 31st, 1962. That's fast. So it could not have been a trial. He had to have entered a guilty plea. Yeah. Um, And he was 19 years old. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years for the offense. The kidnapping charge was dropped by the local prosecutors. During my research of the case, I couldn't find the reasoning behind this. However, due to experience, I know offenses deemed lesser or more difficult to prove are often dropped during a plea agreement. I think it was just a plea. Like, I'll I'll cop to the molestation, but I want you to drop the kidnap. Yeah, which doesn't make sense, but whatever. Well, I mean, as we found out in the documentary, you get more... Well, you only got five years for the kidnapping, I guess. He That's just, what I'm saying. Like, I don't know. 
I'd be like, I caught the kidnapping. I didn't do the other. But you, you would know. think, but he was incarcerated at Reedville State Prison. And on November the 1st, 1962, he was sent to Milledgeville State Hospital for psychiatric testing. This is the second time. Yes. And I again, think that's important to note. Yes. Um, again, the reasoning has not been revealed in any research that I've done as why he kept getting kicked over for psychiatric testing. Clearly, there must have been, like, markers. There had to be something. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't kick everybody over for psychiatric testing. And that's the second round. Right. <laughs> Um, like a year later. Yeah. So. But you know, juvenile system and adult system don't communicate. And especially not when it's one in one state and one's in another. No. You know, or they didn't used to and they still really don't. No. But. So. In March 1963, Franklin escaped the custody of Milledgeville State Hospital while being transported for an eye exam. Franklin then stole a car and drove to Macon, Georgia which is really close to the South Carolina line, where he pu- purchased a pellet pistol. Okay. And on March 15, 1962, he robbed citizens in South and Southern Bank, gaining more than $6,000. He was captured the same day. He admitted to robbing the bank, but stated that he robbed the bank so he could appeal his conviction for the child molestation charge, which he completely denied any involvement in. That's interesting. I just realized. So that's the only crime he ever copped to. The robbery? The robbery. Because in the documentary, he didn't cop to the... Well, I didn't know he didn't cop to the child molestation. Right. He doesn't... He had to cop to it, though, because there's no way they tried that in a month. I mean, not even... Yeah, but he says he... Even in that, like, he didn't do it, right? Right, yeah. So that one he didn't cop to. He doesn't cop to... Cheryl, he doesn't cop to. He doesn't cop to anything. Anybody. Really. So that's interesting. That is like the only crime that he. He was like, yeah, I did it. But to prove my innocence, which is, what? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> okay. It's a weird way to do it. Yes. So, on July the twelfth, nineteen sixty-three, at now twenty, he was sentenced to fifteen years for the bank robbery and was sent to Chilio. Ohio. I'm butchered that. We're going to go with it. All Ohio people. I'm so sorry. <laughs> In September 1963, he and two other inmates tried to escape from prison by hot wiring the prison's fire truck and ramming the fence near the back gate. I thought that was interesting. Prisons had fire, their own fire trucks? Maybe back then. I know. I found that interesting. I know. Well, like it's a prison. How far? Like, I don't know. I just picture this truck driving around this fence. Like, I don't know. <laughs> That's my mind, though. Go ahead. Right. Gotcha. Well, the truck was damaged, but the inmates were not able to escape. Franklin pleaded guilty to attempted escape and destruction of government property charges in October of 1963. He was given an additional five years that would run concurrent with his bank robbery, so after. Okay. Um... He was then transferred to federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. While at Lewisburg, a maximum security prison housing violent inmates, Franklin was targeted due to his youth and his child molestation offense. So he's like in his 20s? He's 20 at this time, yeah. I think. Yeah, 20. 1963, 20. Okay. He was regularly beaten and sexually assaulted. 
Um, during his stay at this prison, Franklin climbed to the top of the roof of a building and was threatening to jump. He was eventually talked down by prison employees and was placed in the prison hospital ward for psychiatric evaluation. Number three. Yeah. Once released from the hospital ward, he was placed back into the general population where the abuse continued and Franklin continued to incur disciplinary referrals for insolence, running in the corridor, being out of area, and threatening officers and fighting. I mean, that's kind of typical prison behavior. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think in any way justifies anything that this man did, but you know that he's being abused. You take him out, he's suicidal, you get him evaluated, and you put him right back in. Right. Like, I guess that's why we had prison reform. (laughs) Right. Clearly. Probably need more, but whatever. Yeah. So Franklin was transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisons in Springfield, Missouri, for another psychiatric operation observation in June 1964. He was 21 years old. In February 1965, he was transferred again to Marion, Illinois. This prison was a new maximum security prison developed to replace Alcatraz, Hmm. which had closed in 1963. Franklin did not do better at Marion until he submitted to a daddy for protection. He still had to perform sexually. However, he was no longer being beaten. Since Franklin was protected, he was able to concentrate on his education and obtain a GED. He also was studying law. Mm. At this time, Franklin began writing letters to the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. Specifically, he wrote the general manager, John C. War. War would write Franklin back, and Franklin would apologize for his behavior in the home. While War encouraged Franklin to continue to pursue his education and a good way of life, War expressed concern about Franklin to prison officials, stating that while smart, Franklin was very troubled. See, I want to know, like, what those (coughs) conversations were. Like, there's got to be—you're in the letter. Yeah. So there's got to be something he's saying in those letters that's, like, enough that you're contacting the prison to be like, listen. Yeah. He's smart. (sighs) But you need to be careful. Like, we've got—there's issues. Right. I would I would love to see. Oh, I would love to see those letters, letters. too. Sorry. In February 1968, at the age of 24, Floyd was transferred to Reedsville State Prison to complete his federal bank robbery conviction along with the child molestation conviction. Franklin had been in prison for a total of eight years at this time, including his time at the Youth Center in California. Hmm. So seven years as an adult. The state prison inmates were no kinder to Franklin, and once again, he began being beaten and sexually assaulted. However, he he befriended a man named David Dahl, a career career criminal, because I can talk, (laughs) who was currently incarcerated on a drug charge. He was a very large man, and and many did not mess with him or his associates. So Dahl and Franklin developed a friendship which would continue for a long time. In November 1971, Franklin was paroled from his state sentence for the child molestation due to a mandatory release program. Don't agree with that. Not at all. Serving just under 10 years for that conviction. Franklin was transferred to the federal prison in Atlanta to serve his remaining sentence for the attempted escape. 
This prison was an interesting place and served as the birthplace of the revolution, birthplace of revolution for prison life. There was a new religion developed there called Church of the New Song, or Cons for short. Yeah, so I had to look that up because that, I'm intrigued. Yes. Okay. And the first little thing that I, I clicked on is that in, because it spread, it, it started there and then it spread through other federal prisons. And this is one from Iowa and they talked about how, um, it was a front for a white supremacy group. It was the guy that started it wanted, he was, he wanted to be the one that could hold the groups himself. And that they found out that when he's holding these groups, these, it's almost like giving you your task. Like you, AC comes in, you go do this today. Like, mm-hmm. and none of them were positive. <laughs> right. Um, this and, wasn't the buttercream gang. No. And another thing that I just found so interesting it was once cons- in their, I don't even want to say bylaws. Like, I don't know what it was called. Like, in their breakdown Scripture. of their, well, breakdown of their religion, porterhouse steaks were one of its communion elements. <laughs> and that just trips me out. I know, because it's like, what could we? What's the most bougie, expensive <laughs> thing? Like, porterhouse steak. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. So they have to supply that for our commu- our communion, which yeah. I just... If y'all want to deep dive in that, just go Google it because there's so much. There's no way we could cover that, but it's interesting. Not currently. Not in relation to this. No. It would have to be its own thing, but it is interesting. Right. Um, so Franklin was attracted to this religion, and he often attended the services. And while attending these services, it allowed him and other men may, inmates to make new associations and friends. Yeah. It did have a positive because it was trying to reform, like fixing. They did. That was an issue. <laughs> Y'all couldn't see the look she gave me. It, they were trying to get better conditions, conditions, treatment, everything. Right. It was at the forefront of trying to better. Now, I think they took it to a dark own. place. <laughs> yeah. But initially, I think it had... I don't think it ever had a good motive. It had an element of that good was motive. not bad. I was going to say, what, what what is that Batman saying that if you are the hero long enough, you li- if you live a hero long enough, you get to see yourself become the villain. There you go. But I don't think this is a hero. No, it was. It like, doesn't fit here. But it does want to remind me. Ninety nine percent not okay. One percent tried to make it better. Eighty eight C Link. There you go. <laughs> Back to the story. Sorry. Yes, it's fine. Um, so in 1972, Franklin was paroled and released to a halfway house. Now, a lot of people may not know what a halfway house was, but it used to be. I don't really think they have them that much yeah. anymore. Are they, they do. do? Okay, well, then y'all probably know, but you get released, you go to this place to help you get on your feet, mm-hmm. essentially. If you don't have a place to go. Right. Yeah. So, and he was released from parole in January 1973. That blows my mind. I know. Serving 13 years for all crimes committed. All of them. Bank robbery, child molestation, escape. Yeah, and then the malicious damage. Well, yeah, and the malicious damage. Government property. Right. Mm -hmm. Franklin attempted... Oh, sorry. Franklin's predatory nature would lead him back into custody soon. Because on January 27th... Now, he got out at the beginning of January. Okay. On January 27th, 1973... 
Franklin attempted to kidnap a woman by sticking his finger in her back, like a gun, near a gas station, and demanding that she drive him. The woman managed, once in the car, Franklin physically assaulted the woman and was grabbing at her clothes. The woman managed to escape, and Franklin was taken into custody on February 7, 1973. Franklin was 29 years old at this time. Okay. Franklin called his buddy, David Dahl, who posted his $3,000 bond for Franklin's release. Franklin failed to appear for his trial date on June the 11th, 1973. Shocker. <laughs> and this begins Franklin's life as a fugitive. So much, man. Yeah. <laughs> so much. All right. So... That's going to bring us to 1974. And Sandra Bradenberg was a single mother of three girls in 1974 when she met Franklin Floyd, known at the time as Brandon Cleo Williams. Franklin reports that he met Sandra at a truck stop diner while he was working as a bus driver in North Carolina. Sandra reports that they met at a church in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. I'm going to be honest with y'all. I don't know which one's more reliable. So we're just going to I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm. I don't know who did what. I don't know what's true. They both lie a lot. So we're just going to, we got two stories. I, I believe Franklin in this one. <laughs> just saying. Right. Franklin reported that Sandra was working as a sex worker when they met, and that was later confirmed by Sandra's family members who reported that Sandra was engaging in prostitution to supplement her welfare income after her first and second marriages ended. And that's why I believe it. Yeah. Because that makes more sense than her being at the church house. <laughs> Crying and because she just lost her kids, and this man comes in here and is like, God sent me. Yeah. I mean... I'm not saying that that is not possible because it is. It absolutely is. But. Nah, I don't think that's what happened. No, I don't think that's what happened. I, I believe Franklin. I can't believe I'm saying that. But I believe Franklin over Sandra in this instance. I'm just saying, like, it's a little extra. Yeah. Your story was a little extra. She's a lot lizard. <laughs> that's what they call them. In the South, anyway. No. That's what they call them. Well, I they, learned that when I worked at a welcome center. They can call them that. I will call them sex workers. Wow. Moving on. <laughs> okay. Oh, goodness. So the oldest of Sandra's girls was Suzanne Savickas. Suzanne Marie Savickas mm-hmm. was born on September the 6th, 1969, to Sandra Francis Chipman, age 19, and Clifford Ray Savickas, 20, at St. Mary Hospital in Livonia, Michigan. Mr. Clifford Savickas and Sandra Chipman, according to Mr. Savickas, were high school sweethearts. They married in 1968, soon after graduating from high school. Sandra claims that they had eloped and kept the marriage secret for a while. But it came out when her parents realized she was pregnant. I see that's interesting because that's contrary to what she says in the documentary. She don't say anything about it being a secret. I know. Like I said, I don't know. Mr. Savekas attended one semester in college and dropped out and shortly after he was drafted to the Vietnam War. It was while he was in basic training that he was informed that Sandra was pregnant. Mm, okay. 
He wouldn't meet his daughter, Suzanne, until she was six months old while he was on leave from the war in Hawaii. See, that I could not imagine either. I know. Oh, that, that's heartbreaking in yeah. itself. It was at this time that Sandra confessed to Clifford that she had been having an affair and wanted a divorce. Clifford begged Sandra to reconsider, which she said she would. However, a few months later, Clifford, back at war now, received a letter from his father stating that Sandra was continuing her affair with a man named Dennis uh, Bradenburg. See, this is why I don't care for her. <laughs> oh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't care for her. That's why I said what I said, but I just feel like that is so wrong. It is so wrong, and it gets so much worse. Oh, I know, but that just, he comes home. Meets, begs her. Meets his daughter for the first time. Mm-hmm. Begs her, please stop. And she said she would, right? She said she would reconsider. Yeah. She'd reconsider. And then he gets a letter from his dad being like, like nah. she didn't reconsider. Right. She's still doing it. Right. So Clifford asked for a leave and was granted one for three weeks. So he returned home. When he arrived, Sandra reported that she was in love with Dennis and was pregnant with his child. Clifford filed for divorce. Sandra gave birth to Allison prior to the divorce being final, so Allison was given the last name of Savekas. Allison was born in 1970, so she's just a year younger, a year and some change younger than Suzanne. Wow. Mr. Savekas was discharged from the Army in 1971. Sandra was living in North Carolina by then, where she had given birth to another daughter, Amy. Mr. Savekas reported that he and a friend drove down to North Carolina to visit with Suzanne in 1972. This would be the last time that Mr. Savekas ever saw Suzanne. Wow. According to Sandra, she and Franklin, known as Brandon at the time, met at a church shortly after Sandra had lost her children to the state for being unable to take care of them and keep them safe. Mr. Clifford Savickas reported that he received a letter in 1973 from a social services office in North Carolina stating that Sandra had lost custody of her three children and inquired as to if he would want to take all of the children. Mr. Savickas reported that he was not mentally, emotionally, or financially able to do so at the time. He then received another letter from social services stating that Sandra had met another man and was about to get married to Brandon Cleo Williams who wanted to adopt Sandra's three girls and inquired as as if as to if Sandra asked would he be willing to sign over his parental rights. Mr. Savekas reported that he didn't have a job, he was barely in his 20s, and thought a married couple would be able to provide a better life than him, so he agreed. And he was not mentally well either. No, not from Vietnam. Like Vietnam had messed him up because he says that in the doc, like his story's consistent book and... Documentary. Documentary. Yeah. Now he doesn't say he got a letter, but I don't think that, that I think that's it's here or no there. Like it, he said he got in touch. They got in touch with him to say right. take all three. Which goodness, I couldn't imagine. You know, You're 20, one's mine. Twenty one, twenty two, twenty three. Right, and I have no job. He said he was drinking heavily. Yeah, he was living with his parents. Yeah, like. like I I don't blame him. I think he carries guilt too. Like I when you watch that too. documentary, like he's got a lot you can see his guilt. Yeah. Like he feels like he failed his daughter. Yeah. One hundred percent. Right. So 
And how you gonna like turn around and I'm getting married? Right. Like you just met Crazy Pants. Like, <laughs> crazy Pants, Crazy Pants. Okay. Like, but anyway, <laughs> like I don't. It's not what we would do, you know. But I just. <sighs> I mean, you just met him at church or in the truck stop. Either way. At yeah, either one. No. Well, hold on. I'm going to tell you exactly how long they dated before they got married. Okay. Um, this was the last time that last letter where he agreed to sign over his parental rights was the last time he would hear about Suzanne until the FBI contacted him decades later. And we don't know if he actually, if Floyd or Franklin actually ever got to adopt. Yeah, I don't think he did. Okay. I think that was the original plan. Okay. Um. But or that was just a story Sandra and Brandon told um, Children's Services to get the kids back. Maybe uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. So Sandra reports that she married Brandon Cleo Williams, which is Franklin, two weeks after they met, because they stated that because he stated he would help her get her girls back and be a father to them. Sandra reported that their marriage was strange from the beginning, stating that Franklin, Brandon, couldn't have sex unless the sex was violent in some way. She reported that they lived with her family in Pennsylvania for a brief time and then moved to St. Charles, Missouri. She reported that Franklin, Brandon, was always nervous and easily spooked. She reported that she didn't know much about him. No, duh. (laughs) Right. Yeah, dated. For two weeks. Right. And at that point, you didn't even date. No, you didn't. Yeah, met him and married him. I'm so, I guess because we do this stuff, and like even before yep. the podcast, I've always watched true crime. Mm-hmm. So like if you come in to me, come to me, and maybe it's just me as a person, I'm so suspect. Oh, and girl, if you're like, I'm going to help you, why? What you want? Look. I would immediately be like, I'm not like you. So when I met my significant other mm-hmm. on our first date, right? Yeah. He literally was like, I knew nothing about you. He was like, I don't even know your last name. And I'm like, exactly. yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't know my name, my address, you know what I do. Yeah. And then I have a kid, but that's it. But I bust out laughing because it's just me to keep my stuff guarded. I just, I'm so, I know that there are people there that will help you and stuff. I just wouldn't trust anybody that's like, hey, one, I wouldn't trust if they're like, God sent me here. Let's get your kids back. Immediately, I'd be like, no, I don't think he did. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't, he didn't tell me that. Right. So he tells me that and we'll talk about it. But I didn't get that memo. So. Nah. You need to back up all of me. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm just too, I just don't trust. We don't trust and we're super jaded. I, I guess. Yeah, this, even hearing it, I'm just like red flag. Red, red flag. flag. Red, red flag. flag. Like, all of it makes me nervous. I know. And she's just like, oh, okay. Like, mm, I have issues with her. I do too. You're going to have more issues. Oh, Lord. Uh, A lot more issues. So, she reported that um, he always acted like he was being stalked. He's a wanted felon. Well, she didn't know that. Well, that's why. I know, but yeah. So, while in St. Charles, Franklin, Brandon, would disappear a lot, and he would rarely let Sandra or the girls leave home when he wasn't with them. Hmm. Control. Oh, yeah. When he thought someone had moved his car, he jerked the family up and moved to Texas. 
Really? Yeah. That's how paranoid he was. But you got to think, this is like a year, maybe two. After fleeing? After fleeing. So moved your car? Well, do you think the cops are out there like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's paranoid schizophrenic. And... Mm. I think it's part of it. Yeah. And, you know... The walls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, is this another Billy Milligan case? It's not quite. He didn't have. Well, I guess if you consider his identities, different personalities, yeah. then maybe. But no, these were legit stolen identities. So okay. he was the same person, but different name. Got it. So, <laughs> sorry. They arrived in Texas in 1975. It was there that Sandra was arrested. Okay. okay. Sandra reported that it was due to a bad check charge stating that she had written a check in North Carolina for $1.78 at a 7-Eleven to buy milk for the girls. That's different from the documentary, too. I know. However, there are different stories as to what Sandra was arrested for. Ooh, okay. Her family found out that Sandra was still working as a sex worker in Texas. Mm-hmm. And that she may have been arrested and jailed for a solicitation offense versus the bad check offense. Mm. But I don't know for sure. I could lean towards the solicitation because if the family confirmed it, she full out denied it. And she didn't even deny it. She didn't even say anything remotely about it in the documentary. So I could totally see her trying to paint herself in a different light. Right. And saying it was a bad check because she said it was due to buying diapers. Right. Well, Franklin said later on that it was a hot check is the reason she got arrested. Mm. I don't know what's true. Yeah. Um, I kind of lean toward the solicitation. Yeah. And the reason for that is because she was sentenced for 30 days. And I know bad checks are bad, but. It was a dollar. It was a, well, $1.78 in the 70s was a lot. I mean, here it's like, meh, yeah. you know. Um, Sandra reported that while she was in jail, Franklin took off with Suzanne and left Allison and Amy in the care of the church that they belonged to in Texas. However, this is also conflicting. So according to Finding Sharon, there is reason to believe that Sandra actually gave Suzanne to Franklin, Brandon. Really? Yeah. There is also reason to believe that Sandra traveled to Oklahoma after her release and attempted to sell Allison and Amy. What information? Like, how how do they know that? Or it, speculate that? They speculate that just based on what Allison told them, who was next to oldest, mm-hmm. and um, Franklin and family members. Because the family members, when they found out about it, Suzanne, they actually tried to find Suzanne. Okay. Her brother. Okay. Specifically. Her brother and her parents. So you think mom knew this whole time where? Yeah. Well, initially, I'm sure after they bounced around, she didn't, she lost contact with her. But initially she knew? I think she knew he took Suzanne. Yeah. And was cool with it. Wow. Um... Sandra never filed a police report about Suzanne. Now, she tries to say that oh, she... she went in there and raised Kane. But there's nothing documented. But she also claims it was because law enforcement were like, are you married? She said yes. And, well, there's nothing we can do. 
Yeah, I just don't know how much. I don't know well, what I'm to just believe. saying that's what she claims. That's what she claims. I'll give it to her. But there was no police report. Nothing. Mm. I, and I put Sandra claims that she tried to file a police report, but this is unconfirmed. Yeah. Um, it should also be noted that sometime during the time frame of before or after Sandra met Franklin Brandon, that she gave birth to an infant who was adopted during a private adoption in North Carolina, which she later tried to claim that Franklin took that child as well. Hmm. So again, I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it's not his kid? No. She, Sandra's had a total of seven children. But she was married to Franklin when she... She was already pregnant with this child prior to meeting Franklin. Oh, okay. But it's not the dentist guy's baby. I don't know. We, I literally, I, know. I have no clue. Wow, okay. So Sandra ended up giving birth to seven children. <laughs> like, because I don't know that protection was right. as readily available. Available and... Or just used or... Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Right. I also want to say that Allison, her sister, is the only one of her siblings that actually has memory of Suzanne. Oh, wow. Because she was just a year younger. Yeah. And she doesn't remember much. Um, she remembers Suzanne and her playing with crayons. Did they, did they interview in the book? They mm-hmm. interview Allison? Okay. Yeah. And her last memory of Suzanne is her sitting on church steps, Allison and Amy sitting on church steps, and watching Franklin and Suzanne drive away. Does she have memories of Franklin? N- not that I have. Not vivid. Okay. You know, like, yeah, he was there, but... Like, but he was nothing that we know where he was abusive or physically... Not that I know of. ...to the children? So, hmm. Franklin reported to the FBI years later... Um, that he originally took Suzanne to Washington State so he could work as an apple picker. But by August 1975, the two were in Oklahoma City, where Franklin had taken on a new identity of Trenton Davis, and he had ascribed the alias of Suzanne Davis to Suzanne. I still don't know why take her. According to Franklin... She wanted to go with him. I don't believe that. I do. I think she was bonded to him. I don't think he had hurt her yet. And I think she was scared. She was five. Her mama was gone. And I think she was scared. And she's like, don't leave me. Like, you know. See, I don't. I think he took her because that makes his life more complicated. Right? So, like, his up and leaving attitude is going to be difficult Mm -hmm. with a little person. So, I feel like there was something there. I I mean, it's. I think he was attracted to her as a pedophile. I do. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But I don't know that the abuse had started at this time. But even though maybe it had, she was so young, she would still have been scared. Yeah. Her mama's not there. No, I'm. Yeah, five, I'm sure, or four. Yeah. Um, 
freaking out, but I, I, I do agree with you that I don't think the abuse had started yet. I think it started as soon as he took her. Oh yeah. I think he had planned it. Yeah. And I think that he's a pedophile and he was attracted to her and was like, this one I like other two. I don't want any part of. Well, he said that the other two were a handful. So I think Suzanne was better behaved. Yeah. That's awful. Ugh. Sarah. Coffee breakers. That part one. <laughs> part one. Yeah. Of how many you think? Hopefully two. I think I can get it next week will be the second and final installment of Girl in the Picture. Okay. Um, with that being said, Coffee Breakers, we got you to Suzanne's elementary school when she started elementary school. Um, and I'm going to pick out, there's not much known about her elementary school years, but we do know a little bit about her middle school years. We know a lot about her high school years. Yeah. And we're going to go from there and wrap it all up next week i'm excited to hear the rest of it honestly yeah it's a lot it's a lot 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 yeah and this is already so much more than the documentary gives i hope it's clear i think so because listeners can let us know yeah let us know let us know if it's clear Mm -hmm. um so with that being said we're going to go ahead and say goodbye to you guys for this week uh, well, not goodbye. Just see Till you later. Friday. We'll see you Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if you like our free-for-alls. Um, so, please subscribe or follow or whatever so you don't miss any episodes. We have a lot of great content coming. We appreciate you all. We love you all. Yeah. Absolutely. If you would like to support us, you can go to um, click the link in the show notes. And whatever you feel like giving. Yeah, and listening on Spotify, sharing us, like getting the word out, all that supports us too. Oh, yeah. So if you can't do monetary, hey. Hey, share it. Share us. Tell a friend. Yeah. (laughs) And I have to say that you guys showed up and showed out, and I truly appreciate all the support. We truly do. Um, You can find us on all the socials. Um, under Take a Coffee Break and Chill podcast on Facebook, Coffee Take a on um, Instagram, Take a Coffee Break and Chill on the TikTok, and at Coffee Break uh, on Twitter. Yeah, we don't use that one so much. Yeah, not not too much. Yeah. But if you guys want to find us there and engage with me there, I would be more than happy to spend more time on Twitter. Right now, Facebook and Instagram is my thing. And TikTok is Scully's thing. So. Yep. All right, y'all. So until next time. Bye. Bye.